1: Well, I don't care if you're a family of, like, 12 or a family of one. I think everybody has their favorite Christmas movies. And one that has sort of, like, slid into modern classic status is Charlie Brown's Christmas. Anybody with me on that one? Yes? That was not nearly enthusiastic enough. Charlie Brown it's the best. Here's what I love about Charlie Brown's Christmas. We find Charlie right in the beginning in the midst of this like existential crisis, right? He's this overthinker. I really like Charlie Brown. He's in the midst of this existential crisis. He's leaning up on a wall with his best friend Linus and he's processing these feelings of disillusionment that he has around Christmas time and and then things kind of go from bad to worse. He goes to see the perpetual perpetual entrepreneurial Lucy for psychiatric help. She goes, nickels, nickels, nickels. I love the sound of clinging nickels. And then he heads home, and his little sister, Sally, wants help writing her Christmas letter, right? And she suggests that Santa bring her what? How about 10s and 20s? That's what she wants. And then his loyal beagle, Snoopy. Even Snoopy gets sucked up in it, right? And so we watch as Charlie's, like, disillusionment builds and builds and builds. It's like this pressure cooker... And so finally, like on stage, he just unloads and explodes and he goes, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? Then Linus steps up, the theologian of the group. (laughs) Linus steps up, he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he goes, lights, please. And then he recites that very familiar portion of scripture, the angel's announcement, to the shepherds that concludes, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then he steps out and he says, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And the whole mood shifts. And not that you need my cultural commentary, but one of the things I love most about Charlie Brown Christmas is that living in a post nominal Christian world, Linus puts the gospel in millions of American living rooms. And it's not just quaint, it's really, really good. Jesus came, he came to save, and that brings peace. Jesus is how life gets back to how it was supposed to be. Charlie Brown Christmas is 50 years old. More than that, actually. It's 25 minutes long, but it's absolutely perfect. My opinion. (laughs) So this is the second week of Advent. And um, last week we talked about hope. Hope. So I'm going to relight our hope candle here, this evergreen candle on the top of these things and symbolizes the hope that we have in Christ that never really changes, never really goes away. I'm going to light the peace candle this week. Peace. We're moving through Advent week by week. I think of all of these attributes, all these ideas, these virtues that come up around Advent, I think peace is probably the most misunderstood So, as we light the the peace candle this morning, here's where I want to go. Usually we take one text, we open it, we unfold it together, we pull out what God's saying. But I think this morning um, is going to lay a little bit differently. Uh, First, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite words. We're going to do a little word study. Then I'm going to tell you a story around this idea of peace. Actually, uh, the lack of peace, maybe. Then we're going to take a look in uh, just a short section of the prophet Isaiah And then I want to wrap up by talking about not just how you can have peace this Christmas, but how you can spread God's peace this Christmas. So first off, one of my favorite words, here it is. It's a Hebrew word, and you're going to say it after me. It's called shalom. Shalom. It's translated peace a lot of times in the Old Testament. It's used 236 times in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. And it's translated peace. Peace used a lot of different ways, though. And so this morning, as we just get into it, I want to tell you just about five ways to use shalom in the Old Testament. We're going to hit a lot of scriptures really quick. First off, shalom can be used as a greeting, both in going and coming. When David meets his future father-in-law, here's what he says in 1 Samuel 25, 6. He says, and thus you shall greet him. Peace to you. Shalom to you. Shalom to your house. Shalom to all that you have. Later, when Eli even bids farewell to Hannah in the temple, he says, go in shalom. The point is that shalom should be a part of the fabric of our relationships just as much as hello and goodbye are. Second way we see shalom in the Old Testament is it's always used relationally. In the Joseph story, you remember his brothers did him wrong and they're scared that he's going to exact retribution on them for selling him into slavery years earlier. Joseph wants to assure them that he doesn't, they don't need to be afraid. Here's what he says in Genesis 43, verse 23. He says, shalom to you. Do not be afraid. And for shalom to be shalom, for peace to really be peace, fear has to be far away and relational restoration has to happen. Third way we see shalom in the Old Testament is it's used to describe deep healing. Healing, deep, not just like fake stuff. In Jeremiah's day, the religious leaders turned peace into kind of a false optimism when they chose to deal with the easy issues instead of spending their time on the root cause of our problems, which is our sin. And so here's God's take in Jeremiah 6. He says this, he says, they've healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace saying, shalom, 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 it's okay, everything's fine. This is God saying, don't just slap a shalom band-aid on cancer and pretend it's gonna be fine. That's not how that works. That's not my kind of shalom. I want something deeper for you. The point is, before you can enjoy real peace, you've got to acknowledge the real problem. God's peace is complex, isn't it? Fourth way we see shalom in the Old Testament is it's something that God invites us to do. God invites us to work for shalom. In Psalm 34, 14, here's what he says Turn away from evil and do good. Seek shalom and pursue it. This extends into the New Testament. When Paul writes this in Romans 14, verse 19, he says, Let us pursue what makes for shalom, for peace. And mutual upbuilding. And then back in Romans 12, I love this one. Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The point is that God's people, we ought to be known as people of peace. Last way, we see shalom show up in scripture, and this is probably the most meaningful, at least I think for us is to remember that shalom is actually a gift of God. It's a greeting, it's relational, it's deep healing, it's something for us to do, but it's also a gift of God. Isaiah 45, seven says this. This is God speaking. He says, I form light and create darkness. I can make well-being and calamity. Well-being is the word shalom. I am the Lord. I do these things. Speaking of protection, Leviticus 26.6 26.6 says this, I will give peace, shalom in the land, and you'll lie down and you won't be afraid. Looking to the New Testament, curiously, Jesus says in John 14, when he's talking with his disciples hours before his death, and they're kind of getting the drift that something's about to happen. He says this, he says, my peace I give to you, but not like the world gives peace don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. The point is, only God can give us the peace that we are created to have. Now, you take all that, all those ideas that shalom is a greeting, it's relational, it's healing, it's something for us to do, but it's also a gift of God. You take all of that, you put it in a blender, and you hit puree. Here's a good definition of shalom. Shalom, the way things were supposed to be. The way things were supposed to be. Now here's what this has to do with Advent and the Advent candle. By connecting shalom, peace, with Jesus' birth, Christians are making a very strong statement that yes, the world has gotten off track. No, things are not right, but yes, they can be made right again. And here's where we put our flag in the ground. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the way back to experience God's shalom, Only by placing our faith in him and his work on the cross can I enjoy peace. Or if you want to put it a really quick way, only Jesus will bring peace because only Jesus is God's peace. If you want a big, like, kind of theological way of looking at it, the pain that we see becomes the peace that we need only when we run it through the person of Christ. And so that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I like to think that if the special was like an extra 45 minutes, they probably would have crammed that in there. But that's okay. It's 25 minutes long. It's all right. This past Monday, um, I got a phone call from a friend. And actually, it was a text. It was about like 8.30 at night. And he texted me. He says, hey, um, do you got five or 10 minutes for a phone call? He said, I got something going on that I'm just kind of processing through. I just want to talk with you a little bit. I said, sure, absolutely. So called them back. And um, I didn't know what, but you know, like 8, 8.30 at night. I'm like, this is probably not like a light thing. And I said, hey, what's going on? And so I heard like huge sigh on the other line. And he said, hey, I need your advice on something. Here's the deal. Um, there's this guy that I work with. We're getting to be really good friends. We're trying to strike up a relationship, kind of learn each other. And he's um, just a really good guy. He's a young family and, Um, We'll call him Todd for the sake of this morning. He says he and his wife have been waiting a long time to get pregnant. And um, they couldn't get pregnant. They went through all the tests. They asked all the questions. They researched all the options. And eventually they got pregnant. And they're so happy. Like grandma and grandpa are ecstatic. This is the answer to prayer and prayer and prayer. And for Todd and his wife, Amy, like hearing an ultrasound heartbeat. You know that noise? Like that. Like hearing that. Totally dream come true. And he says, like, here's the thing. He says, this is a guy that, um, like, if I said his last name, you'd know his last name. It's a very familiar and meaningful name here in the Canton community. He's got a family business, a generational business that he got from his dad. Dad has four brothers, or four sons, and he's one of them. So there's, like, this generational legacy at play here. And so phenomenally successful businessman. Life's going great for him. And then at their last ultrasound... Todd and Amy found out that their baby has a really severe birth defect. They found out that there's no chest skeleton forming. Um, the rest of the bones aren't forming the way that they should. Baby has a 1% chance of surviving outside the womb. And my friend's telling me this on the phone, and he's just like breaking down. He's going, uh. And he goes, All right, Pastor, what do I do? He's like. I love this guy a lot. I wanna give him hope. I wanna give him like a sense of peace because his world's got turned upside down like anybody's would be. Here's the thing, he does not wanna talk about God. He's super angry about it. He's not a person of faith. What do I say to him right now? And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me, like how did all this come about? Like how did you learn about this? How did, how did he bring it up? He says, well, it was a couple weeks ago we were at work and kind of sitting around the conference table and uh, we're all just kind of going through the ups and downs of our week, like good things, bad things, highs and lows, whether it's like work, family, life, just stuff, good things, bad things. And he said, as we were going around, like Todd's eyes are just like glued to the floor, just would not look up. So everybody's kind of going around and it's the normal sort of stuff and when it's Todd's turn, Todd does not look up. Todd doesn't wanna make eye contact but after a couple moments of silence, like it gets to him, and so the facts start coming out. And he shares the facts, and he shares what's going on, and not looking up, not making eye contact, and the whole room, as you could imagine, just like, doesn't move. And he goes, and then Todd said something that totally ripped me up. He said, still looking at the floor, he goes, I didn't sign up for this. He gets up and he leaves the room. And he goes, I don't know what to do. So we all just kind of took a break for a little bit because I don't know what to do. So what do I say to him? That feeling right now that you're feeling as I share that story that happened this last week, that is the feeling of un-shalom, anti-shalom, disrupted Shalom. It's real, it's powerful, it's deep. This vacuous, empty space of non-words where absolutely nothing can be said that just fixes it all. I didn't sign up for this. That is non-shalom. You ever have an I didn't sign up for this moment? The hard exhale of shattered expectation, broken dreams, feeling overwhelmed, just absolutely crushed. I didn't sign up for this. This is not how this is supposed to go. Not here, not now, not this way. Like, I've been in that space too, like more than once. When the peaceful picture that you imagined of how things would go just kind of like goes up in flames. And you live long enough, you just kind of know that life is littered with these I didn't sign up for this moments, right? I don't mean to sound like Eeyore and pessimist, but like this stuff happens. Like life happens. Like I don't share all that to sensationalize un-shalom. I just share it to normalize it. Like this is not right. This is not how things are supposed to be. And we've all been there. Whatever form your unpeace takes. I didn't sign up for this. You ever said that? Sure you yeah. have. Mental health professionals, um, like counselors and therapists, people who are a lot smarter than me about this sort of stuff, um, sometimes say that there's only two base human emotions, like like two things coming off the trunk of a tree. There's only two base human emotions, and like all the other emotions kind of come off of those. Those two base human emotions, some people say, are pleasure and pain. And like everything else is kind of related to one of those two things. I'm not sure what I think about that, but it kind of makes sense to me. And so Monday night, phone in hand, I asked my friend, I said, okay, so when you heard... I didn't sign up for this, what did those words sound like to you? And he goes, they sounded like frustration and disappointment and anger. Absolutely. Those are natural, rational, expected human responses to unshalom in our life. Like when we hit the wall and go flying through the windshield, we go, what in the world? What was all that about? I did not expect that. I didn't see it coming. That response is normal and it's rational and it's actually sometimes healthy. So I asked him, like, okay, like you heard anger, you heard frustration. What did you hear under those words? And he goes, well, he goes, actually, I heard pain, I heard sadness, I heard disappointment, I heard hurt. I go, yeah, like that anger on the top that you see, that's there, he's absolutely angry, but underneath that is this feeling of hurt. Funny thing is, though, emotionally, at least for most of us, hurt, pain, sadness, those things, those are not as accessible emotions as anger is. And so when I don't know what to do, I grab the first emotion off the shelf, the quickest one I can get. And it usually feels a little bit more like anger. I didn't sign up for this. Sounds like anger, but it's probably hurting. So my friend goes, okay, still, I appreciate the theology. What do I tell him? (laughs) And so we walked through about the next half hour of conversation. It was not going to be a five to 10 minute conversation. I appreciate that. First off, he's talking to me. So nothing is ever a five to 10 minute conversation. But here's what we walked through. Um, this is where it gets a little bit heavy. Like, this is my experience as a Christian, but it's also my experience as a pastor. I think there are few things more immobilizing than anger without an object. What I mean is like, when we feel hurt, when we feel anger, whatever we experience it as, anger wants a source. Like, I want something to be angry at. I gotta point this thing someplace. Anger needs an object. And here's the thing. Everybody experiences pain. Christians, non-Christians. It doesn't matter if you're angry at God or not angry at God. Life deals us all curveballs. We've all got un-shalom. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. Jesus is not a free pass away from pain. But here's the difference for the Christian. Our pain has an object. For the Christian, experiencing a I didn't sign up for this moment can sound like this. God, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not ready for this. I don't want this. This is not what I had in mind. And God, I know that you're sovereign. And I know that this is your universe. And I know you control it completely. Right now, I'm doubting that. Lord, help me. God, I also know that you're good. I trust Christ and so that makes me your child and I know that you want good for me. And while I don't know why this came into my life, I know you've got a reason. And even though I don't know it, I'm yielding to it. I know you're forming me and even though I don't like it, I'm submitting to it. And I know that you're working for my purpose and even though I don't see it, I am ready for it. And so give me the strength to do whatever you're calling me to do. You're a good father who makes peace from my pain, so let's go. That's not trite, okay? Like that's not easy to say. And I don't want to paint the picture you just go, oh, pain is easier for Christians. I don't think it is. You take all of your unshalom, you wad it up in a ball, and you throw it at God. That's what we see in the Psalms. That's what we see throughout Scripture. It's like Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. The pain that you see becomes the peace that you need only when you run it through the person of Christ. It's not quick, it's not easy, it cannot be flippant. But for the Christian, pain has an object. Now, contrast with somebody who does not know the Lord, or somebody who doesn't have any hope beyond this world. If you buy the idea that there's few things more immobilizing than pain without an object, what do we do? Couple of things, first off, sometimes we get stuck, like we just get immobilized. We don't know what to do and so we don't do anything, just like deer in a headlights. Again, very common, understandable human reaction. You just get stuck. That works, but maybe not for a, little, for a little while, but not long. Because your pain needs an object and you can't just sit with it and bottle it up, it's gotta go somewhere. And so sometimes what happens next is that pain turns horizontal and i go all right all this unpeace that i'm experiencing in my world right now i'm going to turn it on somebody this is your fault this is their fault this is a system's fault somebody didn't do their job somebody dropped the ball if only y-. right sometimes it goes horizontal but usually eventually we just get closed off We take that pain, that unshalom, the anti-peace that we experience, we take it down into the deep places of our souls. We build a little room around it and we wall it off. We close the door and we lock it, making sure that our pain is inaccessible to others, but really inaccessible to even ourselves. And so our souls end up with a little less square footage we have these like weird off-limit signs that show up in places in our life. And we walk with a perpetual limp because something had happened, but I'm not talking about that. Mm-mm. How many of you know that while we are busy seeing our unpeace, we're living, we're walking through all these unpeace things that we experience in our world, we're saying, I didn't sign up for this. How many of you know that God's back there going, I know you didn't? I signed you up for this. <laughs> And I signed you up for this because I want you to be closer to me in a way that you could not be if you were just hanging out over here all day long. The pain that you see becomes the peace that you need only when it is run through the person of Christ. Now, all of that is introduction. So here's the thing about Old Testament prophets, okay? Old Testament prophets were probably a little bit weird. Old Testament prophets always probably had this look in their eye, like they were looking like way down in the distance, like they were probably with you, but they were a little aloof, I would imagine. If you sat and talked with some of the prophets in the Old Testament, I imagine they had this look in their eye that said, I'm here, they're like, I'm not really here, <laughs> They had one foot in the world, and then they had one foot in someplace else that you couldn't quite understand. They were aloof but present. They talked about a future day, but they still understood the present moment. They knew what really matters, and they know what matters now. One of my favorite uh, Bible teachers, or teachers in Bible college, explained prophecy like this So there was like a prophet who was standing on a mountaintop, and like he can see down in the valley or you can see what's right in front of him. He can see what's right here. But then he can see a mountaintop over there that nobody else can kind of see. And he can see beyond that one, and he can see beyond that one. And like, he can't tell how far these things are apart. He can't always tell, like, what's in the middle. But if you're an Old Testament prophet, you're looking out and you're going, yes. Here's the thing. From your view on the mountaintop, if you're a prophet in the Old Testament, you see things that people in the valley can't. And so Old Testament prophets are God's gift for a what's going on. I didn't sign up for this kind of people. So standing on his mountaintop, Isaiah, he saw something. Here's the first thing he saw. He sees it, and then he yells down in the valley to tell his people about it. It's Isaiah 9, verse 2. He says, Um, oh, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then he talks to God. He says, you've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy with the harvest. And they're glad when they divide the spoil For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his oppressor, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken on the day of Midian. And then he gets this great war imagery. He says, for every boot in the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like, we're not going to need that stuff anymore. Why, Isaiah? He says, for to us, a child is born to us the son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is Isaiah standing here 700 years before Christmas yelling down, they go, going, guys, I can see something coming up here. It's like a mountaintop away. I don't know how far it is, but gosh, it's gonna be so good. Just sit and wait for a little while? As it turns out, that is uh, 700 years away, that mountaintop from where Isaiah saw it. What's he describing? He's describing Christmas morning. (laughs) That's what he's describing. This child who's gonna be born. It's the birth of the Messiah. We'll call him, what's his name? Jesus. And then Isaiah, like he stands back and he squints his eyes even a little bit further and he sees another mountaintop out there. He looks even further. And then he says this, Isaiah 11, verse one. Describing the second thing that he sees. He says, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We'll come back to that. And a branch from his roots shall bear his fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he can hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then he talks about this other really vivid imagery that sounds almost too fantastic to be believed. Thinking about what this child will do Grow up to be a king, and then listen to these words The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, the young shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not dis- hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine yelling that down to the valley. <sighs> Like, guys, I saw something 700 years away, but there's something even beyond that. Like, I don't know how far it is, but like, he's born, then there's this big gap, and you're not gonna believe what he's gonna do. So what do we see here? A couple things I wanna pull out. First off, this vision that Isaiah sees is all about a person. It's all about a person. And he describes him with a really weird metaphor right up front. He says he's a shoot from Jesse's stump. What is that about? Well, who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's dad. And what he means is, Jesse's dead, He's been dead for a while. King David's dead. David's son's dead. If you were walking by a trail out in the woods and you saw a stump that said, like, this was Jesse, you'd go like, okay, must have been something cool, but I don't see how that's relevant for me right now. Well, at the time of Jesus' birth, there hasn't been a king in Israel for over 600 years. And what Isaiah is saying is one day that family is gonna produce another king. Something's coming out of God's not done with Jesse's family. God's not done with David's throne. David's gonna have a great, 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 great grandson who's gonna do something awesome. What's he gonna do? Verse 2: the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord, like that pillar of fire, sea-splitting spirit of the Lord. Yes, that one. It's gonna be on this king. Verse three, he's gonna lead like nobody else. He's not like other kings who are looking for power. His heart will incline to the poor, to the people that need it. Verse five, he'll be known for two things, righteousness and faithfulness. What he says he'll do, he's actually gonna do. Who is a king like that? (laughs) Second observation about Isaiah's vision. This vision of peace destroys worldly conflict. This is one that you see, it leaps right off the page to you. After asking, well, who is this king? You read all that stuff about like wolves and lambs and you're going, "What world is this? This is like a fantasy world. Wolves and lambs? Like that goes against every fairy tale I have ever heard. Like wolves think of one thing when they look at lambs. Delicioso. That's how wolves and lambs go." Leopards and goats, like I've seen enough animal planet. That's not how this works. And like little kids playing with cobras, like somebody call Stark County Family Services because like that sounds like really bad parenting. That's not how this is supposed to work. The point is this king will bring God's shalom in such a way that earthly enemies become eternal friends. What is that? Isn't that a beautiful picture for a needlessly bifurcated, deeply divided world? This king will do something to restore relational brokenness. And did you catch that little bit at the end where he says, A little child shall lead them? Tell me you're not like imagining a manger scene there. <laughs> Third observation, and then we'll talk about what we do with this. This vision of a peace, the vision of peace that Isaiah shows us is accomplished for the glory of God. Take a look in verse 9. After tumbling down this seemingly unbelievable cascade of peaceful imagery, we're all asking, well, how's this gonna happen? Who's gonna motivate this? What's gonna drive this thing? And so God, through Isaiah, puts a three-letter speed bump right in our path. It's that word, for. At the tail end of verse nine, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How does the water cover the sea? Completely. There's not one part of the seabed that isn't wet. It's like the definition of water. (laughs) Everywhere. Everything gets saturated. Every nook and cranny. When this peace happens, the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Just imagine that for a minute. The underside of every upturned leaf in the gutter. Every blade of grass in your backyard, every little nook under every rock on the bed of every stream will be filled with the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God reverses the alienation introduced by the fall, making shalom possible. And so we're picturing it, we're caught up in it, we're imagining it. Shalom, the way things are supposed to be, Isaiah 11, and you're like me, you're going, okay, when? Because I'm tired of all this other stuff I got to deal with in the valley, right? Here's the timeline. The first mountaintop, Isaiah 9, happened at Jesus' incarnation. This is Christmas. The second one, Isaiah 11, hasn't happened yet. This mountaintop is still somewhere out in the distance. I read Isaiah 11 and I look at my world and I go, that doesn't sound like that's happening right now. And so we are in the valley between Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, a valley that's at least, according to this morning, at least 2,023 years long. Here's what this means, Charlie Brown. On Christmas, God initiated peace through Jesus' incarnation. On Good Friday... God achieved peace through Jesus' work on the cross. And on Easter, God ratified that peace through the resurrection. And then one day, still out in the future, Jesus is coming back to institute fully his peace on earth. Now, what does that have to do for today, this valley between the spaces? I wanna give us four ways, just in closing. And then we're gonna to move to the Lord's Supper. I wanna give us four ways that you can not just have this peace, but actually spread it to other people. And I think this is super important because the story that I just shared with you earlier today is a story that's really familiar. I'm imagining that in a room this size or anybody watching online, stories like that are part of our life down here, aren't they? And it shouldn't be that way. If shalom is the way things are supposed to be, how do I get there? I think there's four things. First, start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. I think we forget that things aren't supposed to be this way. I think we're shocked. I think we forget that shalom, though, was there in the beginning. I think we forget the garden. Like our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed perfect shalom with God and with each other. No brokenness. None of that stuff. Now, none of us were there, and so we don't know it. (laughs) But taking God's word by faith, we believe that that's what that was. That's where the beginning of our story started, in perfect shalom. That's why we want it. I think it's just woven into our DNA as people. We've never had it, but we want it. Second thing we need to do is we need to be very serious, very honest about the problem. Earlier I said, before you can enjoy real peace, you've got to acknowledge the real problem. So what's the problem? It's really simple and it's really deep. I'm a sinner. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. You know that. We inherited it. And what that means is that on my own, I love things that God hates. Theologians call this the fall. And we experience sin in lots of ways in this world. Sometimes we experience it just because the world has fallen. Just Everything is subject to sin. Sometimes we experience this as collateral damage, like somebody else, just a bomb went off and I'm right here next to it. Sometimes we experience it because I'm the one that did it. We need to be honest about the problem. Here's the good news about the fall, though, if I could be maybe Johnny Positive spin here for a second. The good news about the fall is it's the most democratizing thing to ever happen to humanity because it happened to all of us. We're all in the same leaky boat. Nobody gets out alive. We are objects of the world's unpeace. But sometimes we're contributors to it also. Third, we need to be clear about the solution. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Something I noticed just as like a breathing human walking around in 2023 is that as precious as peace has become, it's so often counterfeited. It is so often counterfeited. Politics and positions and opinions and false messiahs all are powerless to give us what we need. Peace through forgiveness. I need hope beyond this life. And nothing in this world can give it to me. If we're going to be honest about the problem, we've also got to be clear about the solution. Yeah, we do have worldly problems that can be helped by worldly solution. But Christmas, if Isaiah and Linus are both right, Christmas is about a supernatural problem with a supernatural solution. And here's the good news of the gospel. When Jesus died, he accomplished for sinners a peace that this world can neither contribute to nor take away from. That's the good news of the gospel. By acknowledging my sin before a holy God, by placing my trust in Christ alone as my rescuer and my redeemer, I am instantly forgiven, completely forgiven, totally made new, sealed forever. Praise God that I can have peace because of what Christ has accomplished for me. And so while we may look down here, think down here, listen to the news from down here, navigate tense, extended family Christmas time conversations about what happens down here, Let's never lose sight of the fact that God is working up here and He is doing wonderful things for His purposes. The solution is Christ and Christ alone. Fourth thing, and then we'll move. Be genuine about your hope. Be genuine about your hope. When I was a kid, I had a pair of Adidas Samba shoes. And I think I probably had Adidas shoes for like every moment of my life since then. The problem was I kept getting the laces tied, like in knots. I tried like double knots. And, that didn't work. and like the, when I tried to untie the knots, the knots got worse. Every parent is going, yes, you're describing my life. <laughs> I tried to untie the knots. They kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, what did I do? I just kind of learned to just like jam my foot into the shoe and pretend like the knots weren't there. I hope you're picking up on my metaphor. That is what life is. We tie knots for ourselves. Sometimes other people tie knots for us. Sometimes they're just there. And we work our feet into the shoe trying to convince ourselves that it's okay. What we need is someone to come along and untie the knots. That's Isaiah 11. (laughs) At the end of all things, This is what our Savior offers us, is restored shalom, peace, back to the way things were before any of us have ever experienced it. So band, if you guys want to come on out, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, and here's what I want us to do. We're going to to celebrate communion, and then we're going to sing a song uh, together. It's a Christmas song, but it's one of these Christmas songs that kind of spills the banks of Advent. Called, Oh Come All You Faithful. What that does not mean is, Oh Come All You Who Have All the Answers. That's not what faithful means. It doesn't mean, Oh Come All You who, who Always Do The Right Thing. That's not what faithful means. Oh Come All You Who Got Your Stuff Together. That's not what faithful means. I think it's actually a question because it makes me go, Well, what am I putting my faith in? Where is my faith rested? And what this hymn will urge us to is to remember that our faith is in Christ and Christ the Lord. And so deacons, if you guys would want to come forward and if this is your home church, if you've been here for a while, you know how this kind of works. The Lord's Supper is a declaration of saying, I trust Christ. (laughs) And that's why this is for Christians. And so guys, you can go ahead and pass if you want to receive down through the aisles. If you don't know the Lord, my ask is you just let this pass from you. There's no need to take this right now. It's okay. This is for those of us who have claimed Christ and said, yeah, I'm trusting in him. I'm putting my faith in him. This is a memorial meal. It's bread and it's grape juice. Jesus gives us this in the gospel and he says, as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Think about me when you do this. Think about my body. Think about my blood. What those accomplished for you. deacons are working through the aisles and we're taking these. Just hold on to them for a few moments. Use this time as a time to remember what the Lord has done for you and then I'll come back up and we'll take together.
0: May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.